How about we all stand? We're going to uh, read a passage of scripture. Um, as uh, why don't you guys open up, in fact, to the book of Romans, chapter fifteen today. We're going to be uh, shifting gears a little bit today. We've been in a series looking in the book. If you guys need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get your Bible. Um, we've been in a series now on Sunday mornings looking through the book of First Peter, just chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We would have actually finished chapter 2 today, whoop, whoop. Um, but that's not going to happen, so we will be doing that next week. Um, and uh, this is actually rare for me to do this. I mean, I typically follow a cadence of just going through verse by verse and chapter by chapter, but there are occasions where, again, at the end of the day, um, our aim is to really just try to figure out, Lord, what are you, what are you doing, what are you speaking, and, and how do we communicate the things that are on your heart? And this past week, uh, just a couple things took place, I think, for me personally, that were like, I think the Lord was wanting to d- redirect and to refocus our attention on some uh, key elements today, which I'll tell you about in two seconds. Um, and so, number one, it was it involved a passage of scripture. This passage that I'll be reading that was that really struck me. It was just part of my daily uh, Bible reading throughout the week. But then also too, just at the same time, just realizing kind of again, sort of going back into some of these other elements um, of the health scenarios and how that tends to kind of escalate certain opinions and ideas and um, polarizations and whatnot. And it just raised even a bigger question for me: like, how does the church? How do we as followers of Jesus? Um, navigate these things. And, and I, I think the instructions that the Apostle Paul gives us here are not only authoritative, but I think really instructive and helpful for us to really think carefully and maybe even critically um, in a good way on, on how do we do this well? How do we do this well? Because again, what we've been looking at Sunday mornings is this bigger notion of how do we, how do we become a, a goodness community, a community that is focused on doing good, really truly embodying the goodness of God in all that we are and do and say and act. So with that being said, uh, I want to read just a little passage in Romans chapter 5, verse, or Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. And then we will begin to unpack it and take a look at it, and we'll summarize with some final thoughts. And then we will do what we typically do here on Sunday morning, is that we will finish by partaking the communion together as it draws us um, ultimately to that, the, the, the most important element of what our faith is all about, is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. So here we go. Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7 says this, May God, who gives patience and encouragement help you to live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome or accept one another just as Christ has welcomed or accepted you so that God will be given glory. And this is the word of the Lord. And before you guys grab a seat, why don't we just pray, and then we will jump into taking a look at this passage here. So, Lord, right now, we commit our time in your hands. We pray that you would just help us have a sharp, crisp focus upon you, Jesus, here this morning, because that's what we need more than anything. We don't just need instruction or information or exhortation. We don't need a browbeating. What we need is gospel. We need good news, especially in a world that's filled with bad news or chaotic news or troubling news, we need good news. And God, thank you that that's what we get to have as we step into this room, as we step into community together, is we have access to this historic good news. And thank you for that right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? 
I want to uh, talk a little bit about this idea. Um, so if we would have been in Peter, what we would have been looking at here today would have been the debt-canceling death of Jesus. The debt-canceling death of Jesus. Or if you want another big uh, word for that, is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. God showing mercy towards us. In other words, withholding something that we deserve. God withholding something that we deserve. God showing mercy to us. Today, what I want to take a look at in this passage is the idea of the welcome and the acceptance of Jesus. Or if you want a biblical word for that, grace. The grace. Um, In other words, what Jesus offers us is not just simply, hey, I'll put up with you. I'll just deal with you. Or to put it another way, I'm no longer angry at you. I'm no longer frustrated with who you are. But grace says, man, you're welcomed in the very heart of things. You come to my table. You are a guest at my house. I have a space for you with me in this most unique, incredible place. What the apostle gives us is the word welcome. Welcome. That's what he says. I want to show you the next slide. Is this idea of gospel culture. Um, sorry. Next one. Um, maybe before. Here we go. Nope. Somewhere. Before that. There we go. That's it. That's what I want. That's what I want. Okay. So I want us to think about this. For a church community to be truly good, truly good. And that's what we want. We don't really care about being a mega church. We don't really care about being influencers. What we really want to be is good because we truly believe that as we are good, meaning we are truly seeking to follow Jesus and truly seeking to embody the life of Jesus, uh, then I think influence naturally happens and growth naturally tends to just take place because people want to be at a place like that. But our focus, our emphasis is we want to be good. We truly want to be a good church, not perfect church, not even a great church, but a really good church. That's our hope, right? So with that being said, I think for a church to be truly a good church, it needs at least two things. Number one, it needs gospel doctrine, and it also needs gospel culture. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture. Gospel doctrine being truth, if you want to put it in the language of Francis Schaeffer, the late great Francis Schaeffer, he said it this way. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. The word orthodox is the lowercase o, meaning like right teaching, right ideas, right concepts. Orthodoxy of doctrine, meaning the teaching, and orthodoxy of communing, meaning culture. And so the big concept I want for us to consider is that it's possible to have a church community that has gospel doctrine, but does not embody gospel culture. Have any of you guys been in places like that or seen places like that? Or to put it another way, the right when it comes to theological constructs and concepts. But at the same time, the culture is not one that's welcoming of really messed up people. In other words, if you show up in that spot and you're not filling in or looking like a certain type or wearing the certain right clothing or talking a certain type of right language or vocabulary, then you will be looked down upon and kind of mistreated. That's a good example where I would say it's not gospel culture. It's not gospel culture. So it's possible to have gospel doctrine, but not have gospel culture. So in other words, just because gospel doctrine is there in play or in place does not guarantee gospel culture. You would think it would, but it's not necessarily the case. And for a church to be truly good, both need to be playing off of each other. With that being said... I want to now really think about the idea of gospel culture, because I think this is exactly what Paul is focusing on, that it's possible to have all your right theological ideas and ideologies and concepts and constructs in a right, proper order, but the way that we treat each other is not in the right, proper order. The way that we think about 
Accepting, receiving, loving, welcoming is the language that Paul uses. One another is not in the right, proper order. So with that being said, I want to begin to just jump in and think about this idea. So let's first of all take a look at the subject of this word welcome. What does Paul mean when he uses the word welcome? Because again, if you look at chapter 15, verse 7, he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So whatever welcome is, it's going to be compared to whatever Jesus did. Does that make sense? So just hold off on that. We will get to that in just a moment. But first of all, I just want to think about like an example of welcome. So I'm going to use another New Testament passage. It's Acts chapter 28. Um, this exact same uh, Greek word, which if I knew how to pronounce it, I would so that you can think I sound smart. But the fact of the matter is I can't, and therefore I don't want to sound dumb. So the word that's actually used there is a pretty lengthy or large word. But it's really important because here's the way this word actually appears um, in other passages in the New Testament, but specifically this one. It says, after the shipwreck, this is Paul the Apostle, is on a ship, their shipwrecks on this island. It says, and then they learned that the island was called Malta. And the people that were native to the island, they showed us unusual kindness, and they kindled a fire, and they welcomed us. The word welcome, that's the word. So whatever it was that these people did, it was identified as a welcome. What did they do? They lit a fire, they made them comfortable, they took care of them. So in other words, whatever welcome is, welcome is more than small talk which I would argue um, small talk is not bad. Small talk can be good. In fact, I think there's place for small talk. So don't, don't think I'm talking bad about small talk. I'm not. But whatever welcome is in the New Testament concept, whatever Paul is asking us to consider, and whatever it is that Jesus did for us is more than small talk. So Jesus didn't just have small talk with us, uh, nor did Jesus just simply coexist alongside of us. Whatever we are being called to aspire to is more than small talk, more than coexistence. It looks something like creating a fire for someone that looks cold and making some food for people that look hungry. And it looks like whatever has happened here. Again, it actually gets more robust, more colorful, which we'll get to in just a moment here. But I just want to at least put that there out there for you to think about, make it part of the framework, the landscape, the canvas, however you want to use your analogy. Next, I want to think about threats to gospel culture. What are some threats to gospel culture? So in other words, if the idea for a good church, a good church, uh, involves not only gospel doctrine, but also gospel culture, um, we also know that there are some threats to gospel culture. So here's audience participation moment. Um, What would you suggest or say um, that are some potential threats to gospel culture? Anybody? Racism, for sure. Absolutely. So when, for example, there's, there's a differentiation between, you know, our race, this race is greater than, than another race, that, that's a threat. That's a complete threat to gospel culture. Anything else? Racism, for sure. Anybody else? I'm sorry? Idolatry, for sure. Flesh that out a little bit. Why, why would idolatry be a threat to gospel culture? Sorry, I'm putting you on your spot more than you expected. Self-centered. Great. Okay, good. That's great. What else? So idolatry, racism, threats, for sure. Persecution, yeah, for sure. So if, again, even in, let's say, for example, Afghanistan, um, it can be a threat. Uh, I guess I should say it can be a threat. But right now, I think in Afghanistan, they are definitely under persecution. The church, which, again, I've mentioned this before, it's the second fastest growing church in the world right now under incredible persecution. So it makes me wonder, like, what do their communities look like? I guarantee you their communities do not look like this right now. They're not all chilling around with masks. They're not even thinking about vaccinations. They're not even thinking about, you know, my rights being taken away from me. Whatever. They're not thinking about those things. 
They're not even thinking about, like, what's the pastor going to be teaching today? They're gathered together, clinging to whatever it is that they have to hold on to. And maybe, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but that's, we, we can let our imaginations run wild. But I think persecution can definitely play. What else? Anybody else? Okay, division. Who else? What else? Sexuality. Sexual issues can become uh, definitely uh, hindrances. I'm sorry? Political? For sure. Can, I'm not sure. Is that possible? Wait. <laughs> Polarization? Yeah, political. Uh, okay, somebody said something over here. Anger, getting, yeah, being bitter, being frustrated, unforgiveness, all those things. I'll take one more. Anybody else? A couple more. What else? Economical, yes. Social, I mean, James talks about that a lot, right? Describes, like, if, if you're in a church gathering and someone's got a lot of money, comes walking in, and then the community's like, hey, I got a really great seat for you right up at the front, and we're, we have nice chairs for you. But someone who doesn't have a whole lot of money, they come walking in, they're like, hey, we got a place in the, you know, a hall closet for you that you can sit in. Like, like Peter says, that's, that's sinful. That's disdainful. It's the exact opposite of gospel culture. All right. Somebody else said one other thing somewhere. Pop culture. Popular culture. Yeah. Uh, flesh that out for me a little bit. How does popular culture, um, how could that present a threat? Yeah. Following with the masses. Yeah. Whatever, whatever, whatever is popular. And again, you always have to bring things back in line up with Scripture. Is, is what's popular antithetical to Scripture? If it's antithetical to Scripture or causes us to violate our Scripture or the teaching of Scripture, I should say, then, then yes, that is a potential threat to gospel culture. So with that being said, I want to take a look at three specific um, examples that Paul the Apostle actually gives us that are basic threats to gospel culture. Um, I made, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I made up one word for you. You're welcome. And then there's two other words that are just part of, I think, the landscape that Paul describes here. So number one is the word opinionolatry. And what I mean by someone said idolatry over there, um, that's the idea of, of taking opinions, elevating them to a status of, of high honor, high respectability. Is there, let me just start by asking the question, is there anything wrong with having opinions? Not at all. Not at all. Is, it, is, it, is there anything wrong with having strong opinions? Not at all. We would call those kind of um, convictions. There's nothing wrong with having opinions. However, when an opinion that's not necessarily deeply anchored in Scripture or supported in Scripture becomes the means by which you will gauge as to who you will interact with, welcome, love, accept, um, or disdain and remove yourself from, then that becomes an object of reverence more than what it should be. We, we would call that idolatry. And that's where I get the idea of opinion idolatry. So uh, take a look at Romans chapter 14. Uh, so go back a chapter. I'm going to read the first two verses right there, and then we'll move on to the very next one. Paul says this, As for one who is weak in the faith, uh, welcome him. And the big idea that he's talking about, again, this is kind of a part of a whole larger argument or idea, um, a cultural element that Paul is actually addressing. I don't have time to really get into all of it. But in short, Paul's saying that there are, there are two different types of people right now that are in the church that he's addressing. And, and some actually think it's okay to eat meat that was purchased from the supermarket. And the best meat, just so you know by way of analogy, the best meat that was to be purchased back in the day, like the best cut of tri-tip, was probably offered to some, you know, goddess or god. And so some Christians were like, you can't eat that. You can't eat that. That's, that's bad meat. That was like defiled. And uh, some Christians are like, it's no big deal. It's meat that was offered to something that's not even real. 
And Paul, and that was creating major chaos in the early church. Because some people, if they knew that they were eating meat that was offered to this sacrifice, or this idol, I should say, then their conscience, that's what he means by those who have a weak conscience. He's not in any way demeaning them. He's just simply saying that their conscience, their faith, is not enough to be able to look at that meat and say it's okay. He's not in any way putting this person down who has, quote-unquote, weak faith. It's just somebody that is not strong in a particular area that maybe somebody else might be. He says, and as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And then he goes on to say, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person can only eat vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has Welcome them. There's our word again. In fact, it's the exact same word that we just read in Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Welcome. So whatever is going on here, uh, Paul is basically saying, look, this is what God, God welcomed people. God welcomes people. He, wel- he apparently welcomes people that eat both meat to, that's been offered to idols. And he also welcomes people that can only eat vegetables because their conscience is not enough to where they can actually eat that type of meat. And so Paul's going to address this. And, and at the end of the day, he's basically saying, these are opinions that you have over these matters. And so I think what he's suggesting is that these opinions can be raised to such a level where they become means by which they divide and separate and destroy the very community that Jesus is trying to put together. Is our culture right now, here's a question, is our culture right now divided over opinions? course it is and i am not i'm not gonna this is not audience participation time but if i were to ask you like where you stood on certain key points um i'm i'm i even know right now we have differing opinions over politics over presidents over certain things that are happening within our culture at large we all have these differing opinions is there any again is there anything wrong with having opinions no not at all it's fine But if those opinions become elevated to the degree where we use those as the criteria to determine who's in, who's out of our world, then what we've done is we've made an idol out of that opinion. Which, by the way, by the way, that opinion, trust me, that opinion is malleable, mutatable, and it's time-stamped. Which means 20 years from now, it will be a non-existent thing. Just like 20 years ago, it was a non-existent thing. And just like right now in Afghanistan, they're not bickering over masks. Or presidents. So please understand, I have strong opinions about this opinion stuff. <laughs> but the point that I would make is this. You've got to be careful about these things. Because if you use this as a criteria to distinguish as to who's in, who's out, who you'll disparage, who you'll attack, who you'll knock down, just like Paul. How many of you guys woke up this morning and trying to figure out, like, man, should I eat meat to sacrifice to an idol or not? Nobody. It's a, non-issue, it's a non-issue for all of us. For the Corinthian church, was it a big issue? Absolutely. It, it threatened the very church's existence. Or I should say at least how they operated and what their witness looked like in the culture at large. It was so much so that Paul actually spilled ink over this. And blood, sweat, and tears, and prayers. Because that's how essential it was. But the point that I would make is this. Is that we have opinions, and that's fine, but when they get elevated to a point where we are willing to divide over or separate over or to say, I'm going to abstain and not get involved in anybody else's life that does not sync, synchronize their thinking to mine, then that becomes a problem. And I was just thinking about this, like, what would be some two majorly held opinions? I'm just going to, I am going to go there. 
And as I was thinking about this, like right now, and again, this is probably different than what it was eight months ago, but I think right now, uh, and I mean right now meaning like even this past week, these are two major things that I think I keep hearing over and over and over again on news cycles and different types of social media feeds are these two ones. Number one is that, and I would even add, these are both valid concerns, both valid concerns. I think, number one, there is deep uh, an opinion over a concern of uh, government tyranny, number one. And on the flip side is a deep concern over others carelessly transmitting a disease which has caused so much suffering and death. So on the one hand, you've got, you've got differing perspectives as to what this looks like and how far does it go. And I would even, again, add, I think they're both essential. And if you don't find them both important or at least in some way concerning, then it's either maybe that you're not paying attention to what's happening in our world or it's easy to just not make a big issue about them. But the point that I would make is this, is that these are, there are, there's valid concern about these things. But the point that I would make is when we elevate these things to points that we will actually divide or separate ourselves from other people that have been bought by the blood of Jesus, then we've made an idolatry out of it, an opinionology. And that's what I'm thinking that Paul is suggesting. We have to be careful not to go there because what that does is we begin to move into territory that is not part of the church's territory. It's part of the world's territory. That's, part of, that's how our world works. That's why MSNBC will never, ever, ever synchronize with Fox News. That's why Tucker Carlson will never, ever think the same way that Don Lemon thinks. It's just part of the landscape. But if you're a follower of Jesus, our aim is to create a different culture that looks different, acts different, that does not make idolatries out of opinions. So the second thing that I want to take a look at is I think that Paul describes is a potential threat to gospel culture is criticalness. And this kind of plays into it. So if you want to think of it this way, an idea of an opinion can then morph into or degenerate into uh, a sense of criticalness. And here's what Paul says in verse 10. He says of chapter 14, uh, actually verse 3, I'll read that first. And he says, let no one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let no one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed them both. And then skip on down to verse 10, he says this, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So on the one hand, uh, Paul kind of juxtaposes this notion of Jesus accepting all people, welcoming all of those who whether or not they believe that it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols or whether they believe in their conscience that it's not okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols because there's something wrong and disdainful and bad about that. And Paul's saying that in the same church community, you have people that have these deeply held convictions and opinions. And Paul's saying that if you're not careful, then you will end up destroying each other, despising, hating, judging, criticizing each other. And he says, why would you do that? Don't you know that both of you, both of you guys, both whatever team you're on, whatever, you know, jersey you're representing, both of you have been accepted and welcomed by King Jesus. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, don't you know that at the end of the day, neither one of you are suitable to or adequately fixed or able to judge the other? Because you really don't even know the reasons for why they do what they do. You really don't know. You really don't know. And I see that a lot that there's a tendency to oftentimes dismiss somebody based upon very limited information. And what Paul's saying is that at the end of the day, you and I are are inept when it comes to judging rightly. And this is where he says, at the end of the day, Jesus is the one that will be the judge. He will judge all. 
So on the one hand, he will show grace and has shown grace. On the other hand, he will show mercy because that's what the big idea is, that Jesus demonstrates his kindness and his acceptance of us. And this is the point that Paul is making. So when we find ourselves being overly critical or even just critical of anybody, disdaining other people because of whatever choice they make, whether or not they choose to wear a mask or choose to get vaccinated or choose to not get vaccinated, we don't know all the reasons for those things. So I think the instruction for us is to go slow, to be careful, to make certain that we're not putting ourselves in a position that only God righteously deserves to be, meaning the judge. Then lastly, another threat to gospel culture is self-centeredness. And this is where he says in Romans chapter 15, verse 2, he says, let each of us make it a practice to please their neighbor for good, to build them up. So what Paul's inviting people to consider is that, like, look, at the end of the day, to the degree that we place our neighbor or our brother or sister, somebody else other than ourselves, beyond ourselves, in the place of loving and preferring them and caring for them and taking them into consideration, to the degree that we do that, we then begin to display who Jesus is and what God has done for us. So these are three hindrances. Number one, again, opinionology. Number two, criticalness. Number three, self-centeredness, in addition to all of the other great ones that you guys had all stated. Lastly, I want to take a look at this idea of a template for gospel culture. What is the template? Because like I said earlier, at the end of the day, what we do not need necessarily is just simply to be given instruction. Because at the end of the day, if that's all that we have, then we walk in here feeling broken and beaten and battered down and ruined and frustrated and anxious and troubled and dealing with meaninglessness without our life and asking bigger questions of why, what's happening, who's in control, what's taking place. At the end of the day, what we need more than anything is good news. Would you agree with that? We need good news. So instructions are good, but what we need even more so than that is good news. And this is where I think this gospel template comes in. Because what we see again in verse 7 is this template. Listen how he says this again. Go back to chapter uh, 15, verse 7. He says, as Christ has welcomed you, accepted you, so you are to accept others. So he uses as the template, the schematic, if you would. Jesus becomes literally the, the means, the blueprint of what does acceptance of other people or love or care or welcome for other people looks like. Because this is what he has done towards you. Jesus didn't just welcome you into his life to have like little chit-chat or small talk. He doesn't just simply merely put up with you as a next-door neighbor that he would rather prefer to not live next to. He actually welcomes you into the very heart of things. He calls you his own uh, God describes the transaction and the movement of being people that were once orphaned or alienated from God to becoming, orf- uh, be- becoming sons and daughters of God. The entire posture of our lives changes. We have been welcomed, invited, loved in the very heart of things. Do we have different opinions than God? <laughs> of course we do. Are our opinions in line with the heart of God? Most of the times, No especially when I wake up in the morning, absolutely not, no. It takes a process to align, to realign my, this heart of mine to begin to accept or embrace or love or to be a part of what God is doing in this world. It's essential for that. And what we see with regard to this, then Paul would later go on to say in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, he says, you who are strong have an obligation to bear with those who are weak, not to please ourselves, let each of us, Please his neighbor for his good to build them up. For Christ did not please himself as it is written. And he goes on to pass it, 
uh, describe some passages from the Old Testament that point this out. And then take a look at verse 5. May God, who gives his patience and encouragement, help you live in a complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Or another way, as it follows the template of what Jesus has modeled. So the big idea is to step back and ask the question. We have looked at this paradigm before, the idea of the indicative slash imperative paradigm, meaning, indicative meaning, what does the scripture indicate is true about us? Therefore, then, what does that lead to in terms of an imperative? Imperative meaning what you're to do, indicative, imperative paradigm. What has Jesus done for you? Well, Jesus has received you. He's loved you. And to the degree that he has received you, we are invited to allow that to reshape how we think, how we think about others, how we think about those that have differing opinions than us, to rethink all of that, to reshape all of that, to reorient all of our lives to then model that pattern towards others. We'll say, what if they have a radically different polarized, different opinion than myself? Hopefully what you have seen by now is that's not new. That's not a 2021 thing. That's not a Western thing. That's not a California thing. That is a human thing. And Christians have been doing it since the beginning. Struggling with it, but doing it. Or at least been giving access to the power to do it well. Like I said, to be a good church, we truly need not only gospel doctrine, but we also need gospel culture. And I think at the end of the day, when we think about this, the church, the church is not just simply a new institution or a new community that's on the landscape of a bunch of other communities like the Kiwanis Club or, you know, a biking club or, you know, a swimming club or a surfing club, whatever. It is literally a brand new kind of community where all people of all stripes, of all differences of opinions are welcomed. Because at the end of the day, what unites us is not our opinions. That's called a cult. What unites us is not what the pastor says. What unites us is Jesus. Can you have opinions that beyond Jesus? Of course you can. That's fine. But at the end of the day, Jesus, is we bring all of these things back to the lordship, the kingship of Jesus, and we say, you know what, Jesus? You are the king. You are the, what defines and unites, creates all that we are. And what we find within that is we see a different way of living the call of the gospel. And that creates, crafts a community where all are welcomed and all are loved. I heard a podcast this past week, and the guys described it this way. There's two ways to come to church. On the one hand, there is, I'm here, who will notice and welcome me? On the other hand is, you are here, I notice, and I welcome you. And I want want to say that really clearly, also acknowledging that for some, You're broken. Like, your week has been one of brokenness. The thought of somehow you now feeling guilty, like, well, that's not me, um, can also add more grief to you. Like, that's where I want to just really say, of all stripes, even if you are somebody that comes in broken, you're like, I have nothing to give, then we're so glad you're here. Because then you get to just receive. Get to receive over and over again. What about next week? If you're just still broken, you just need to receive. Then great, just receive but i'm confident over time of just receiving god's grace time and time again you will become a new person a different person one that is able to begin to look beyond your horizon and begin to see the kingdom of god break forth and we get to be part of that thing called the church and as we close i want for us just to recognize that as we go to the table now that's what christianity is really all about 
Uh, we talk about symbols a lot in just life in general, but especially in the church, there's many symbols. Christianity has been identified by crosses. It's been identified by the little fish logo. But I think a, a key and a crucial symbol is the one of the table where you and I are invited. Because if you think about it, some of the most memorable moments, maybe even some of the most traumatic and painful moments of our entire lives have been around a table involving, I don't know, let's just say hypothetically Thanksgiving meal. <laughs> We've been around some of these things. But this is what the gospel is all about. We are invited to a table to partake of King Jesus and let him reshape, reorient our lives. So as we finish, why don't we all stand and uh, we'll have a final song. And you guys are more than welcome to come either to the front to grab um, the communion cup or in the back. I think, again, we may have some gluten-free stuff in the back. Um, You're more than welcome to avail yourself of that, and then we will partake of communion together. So as we just sing together, consider the love of God that's been put on display for you. I want you to just think about this. How did Jesus see you and welcome you? That's the template that we're invited to think about our neighbor, especially our neighbor who we might vehemently disagree with on any given popular opinion. But at the end of the day, as a follower of Jesus, we are called to an entirely new way of living our lives, oriented around King Jesus. So I'm going to pray. Let's uh, respond, and then we'll partake of communion together, and we'll call it quits. And uh, if you have children and you would like to bring them in, you're more than welcome to bring them in, and they can partake of communion with you as well. So Jesus, thank you for your love, and we trust you right now. God is our King. So As we close out here, we take this moment, even now, to confess our sin. Maybe right now, wherever you're at, whatever is on your heart, whatever is on your mind, whatever immediately maybe just comes to your thoughts. What are those things that maybe you need to confess before God? Get out in the open. Verbalize them. Just take take a moment, just speak those to God. Say, God, this is it. I confess this to you. Holy Spirit, I'm confident right now is putting his finger on certain areas of your life. But then secondly, we turn to faith. So repentance and faith. Faith meaning, Jesus, we exchange love for these other things, whatever the blank you can fill it in. For love for you. That's what faith is. Faith is turning, trusting in the one who loves you and gave himself for you. So in repentance, faith, let's receive the communion, let's sing, and then we'll partake together as we finish.